In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now this reading that we've just had from Luke 14 shows us Jesus the celebrity. Jesus the subject of intense public and popular interest. Jesus who commands attention. Modern Australia, today's reading from the Gospel of Luke, reminds us that people did find Jesus a magnetic person and that large crowds were prepared to follow or at least to accompany him. But did those people going along with him ever stop to realise anything of the cost if they were actually to follow and become disciples? Did they ever stop to reflect on the implications for their safety or the implications of following for their ease and their comfort in society? Did they ever stop to think about family loyalties? What would happen to them if they followed him? I don't think they did. As Jesus walks along, as these chapters of St. Luke's Gospel progress, he is ever decreasing the distance between himself and Jerusalem. We know this because way back in chapter 9, Jesus, we are told, had set his face towards Jerusalem and we know, because he said so then, that his journey is going to end badly in Jerusalem before there is going to be any happy outcome. The crowds that we read about in Luke 14 don't realise this. The more they walk with him, the more they accompany him, the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Even the disciples don't understand the full import of what is going to happen. And then Jesus turns to address the crowds. What is he going to say? It's not addressed to the disciples, but it's addressed to all those would-be disciples who are walking along with him. The popular, charismatic leader stops to address this great crowd, and what does he say? Thanks for coming out. You know, like those American politicians we sometimes see. Nice to see you all. Thanks for your support. Does he say these things? No, he doesn't. This is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. <laughs> There's a shock. If you come to me, he says, and you want to be my disciple, you have to be, you have to be prepared to repudiate all your family and social and cultural ties. You have to hate them. Hating father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. What can it mean? And on Father's Day, I hope you're curious about this. 
Now, this saying of Jesus that I've just read also appears in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 10, verse 37. And I'm going to ask Daniel to show the slide where you can see both readings. Now, it's also been very badly edited. I hope you can see. <laughs> That's another story. Notice the wording. Matthew says... Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But you can see that Luke has cast the saying in a different way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters. Now there's a very important difference in emphasis here. But it's my belief that Matthew and Luke are saying the same thing. Matthew, the scholars tell us, expresses what Jesus means by hate in Luke's Gospel. And in our context, Hate means loving less. Now, there are some examples that I want to share with you that explain this. One of the great stories of the Old Testament is the story of Jacob, the patriarch, and his wives, Rachel and Leah. And we can see hatred, meaning loving less, in that story. Jacob the patriarch, we're told in Genesis 29 verse 30, loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31, it says Leah was unloved. God sees this and causes Leah, not the more fancied Rachel, to have a child, Reuben, and then to have a second son. And Leah celebrates the second birth by exclaiming in verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, loved less, he has given me this son also. Here is another saying. There is a great collection of Jewish rabbinical teaching called the Talmud. And it records this saying about handsome rabbis. The saying goes like this, if they, the handsome, hated their beauty, they would be more learned than they are, if they loved their beauty less. And finally, another quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from a document called the Community Rule. And it begins this way, the master shall teach all the saints, this is the Qumran community shall teach all the saints to live according to the book of the community rule that they may seek God with a whole heart and soul and do what is right before him to love all the sons of light so all the members of the community and to hate all the sons of darkness all those who are not members of the community hate means loving less 
So returning to our passage, being a disciple must be predicated on loving Jesus more than all those people who give life, meaning and identity, who love us and we them. But, we say, these are our parents, our husbands, our wives, our children. Think of the fifth commandment about loving your parents. What could be more important than loving them? Well, Jesus says in our reading today, give them all up if they get in the way of being a follower. There is room for only one preeminent loyalty, one only, and that is to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Have you ever had to make that choice? There have been many through the centuries, and perhaps many here this morning, for whom that painful choice was one they had to make. And we should listen to them. We should hear their stories, because they are the confessors in our midst. Now I'm going to ask Daniel to show us our next slide. We can follow Marge Simpson's example. Now, I'm a great fan of The Simpsons. And many years ago, it occurred to me that somebody could write a book called The Theology of The Simpsons, and I prepared a proposal to do that very thing. And as I was going to hit the send button, I realised as I was looking at Amazon, that there was such a book already out and on sale called that very title. Anyway, Marge Simpson. The Simpsons, as you might be aware, are church members. And back in 1992, series four, episode three, an episode was aired that was called Homer the Heretic. And Homer decides one snowy Sunday to stay home and not go to church with the rest of the family. Marge tries to persuade him to go, but he's adamant he's not going. And on the drive to church and on the way back, Marge and the children battle blizzards. And the church heating isn't working when they get there. And there's a dreadful fire and brimstone sermon. And the church doors freeze shut with the congregation inside. But Homer, on the other hand, is cosy and snug at home, having the best day of his life, watching a terrific football game. And a few days later, when Marge challenges him about this and asks if he's given up the faith, he has to agree that, yes, he has. But when he seeks to justify his new choice by saying that he can worship God just as well at home without going to church, and that's the sort of teaching he wants to put out amongst the family members, 
Marge says to him this, Homer, don't make me choose between my man and my God because you just can't win. Now that's a profound representation of faithful Christian living in an animated, satirical, comedic sitcom. That's faithful witness, which we would do well to emulate. Now let me ask you this question. This saying of Jesus about hating those we love, how can you determine that Jesus actually said something like that? Sooner or later, if they haven't asked you already, people at work or at the family wedding or at the Father's Day lunch are going to ask you this question. How can you be sure that the gospel writers didn't make it all up? What criteria can you use to assess whether or not Jesus said something like this? Well, one thing you can consider is the fact that Jesus presented as saying in the Gospels from time to time quite outrageous and audacious things. And this saying, this one in Matthew 10 and Luke 14, especially the one in Luke about hating, is gobsmackingly outrageous. Whoever said anything like this about loyalty to themselves. It flies in the face of values people at all times and in all places have believed without question. And to my mind, Jesus must have said this. There are a number of criteria that help us assess the likelihood of Jesus saying and doing what is recorded in the Gospels. This one is called the criterion of embarrassment. It's a difficult saying. And you can apply this criterion to any number of things that Jesus is reported to have said or done. Now, if the first thing that Jesus says to the crowds, to the would-be followers, if the first thing is about hating those we love, if we want to follow him, the second thing that Jesus says to the crowd, to would-be followers, is this, verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's also shocking. That's also shocking. The cross means facing martyrdom by a particularly Roman method of execution. The condemned had to carry their cross to the place where they would be nailed to the cross. Followers of Christ must be prepared to repudiate life itself. Carrying the cross means an intentional lack of regard 
for one's own security and safety if following Christ would otherwise be compromised. Following me, Jesus is saying to all these people, may end up in execution and martyrdom. Cross casts a shadow over all Jesus' followers. And he's not asking us to do something that he wasn't prepared to do himself. He knows that this is a big step. He wants his would-be followers to consider the cost. What loss of face would be involved if people did not count the cost? It's a shameful thing to make a bold beginning only to realise that this is not the way we want to live after all. It's like the builder setting out to build a tower and running out of money when the tower is only halfway up. How foolish the builder looks. It's like the king going to war without reckoning on the fact that his enemy has twice the number of soldiers that he has. Better sue for peace before the battle begins. So, says Jesus to these once eager crowds, I can see them melting away. Take a minute to reflect. And then he concludes, you cannot be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. Bid them goodbye. Renounce them all. If they get in the way, if they load you down, if they amount to baggage when you need to travel light on the way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so friends, following Jesus amounts to nothing less than a radical, countercultural U-turn. Now we considered this last week when we were talking about Jesus' total rejection of the reciprocity system, of so acting that you put people under an obligation to you so you are honoured by them in return. Following Jesus subverts conventional wisdom, turns it on his head. Now it's not hard to understand why Jesus dies alone. Not one of those people who are following in our gospel today and not one of the twelve are crucified with him. Rejected and despised. Even his disciples who had given it all up found it impossible to stand with him at the end. The cost was too high. They all forsook him and fled. The freer Jesus was with respect to social and religious convention, the easier it was to isolate him. He ends up being too vulnerable and too free. Now friends, could we live that way? Could we honestly say that we would find that easy or attractive? And is that the way we live as disciples of Christ in the present? Can we say that we have given up all our possessions? Well, I can't.
Some of us are paying off mortgages. We invest wisely. We buy nice furniture. We save for a rainy day. We celebrate wedding anniversaries. We celebrate Father's Day for crying out loud. So these words of Jesus must, must strike us as very alien indeed. They challenge all the conventional wisdom of our own society as much as they challenge that of first century Palestine. Now I wonder whether you've ever met anybody who follows Jesus' radical program of renunciation. Well, about 30 years ago, I went to our church vestry to get ready for the morning service. And there in the vestry with the rector was an elderly man dressed in a white habit. And I was introduced to him, I've forgotten his name, but he was a hermit. A hermit in the diocese of West Tennessee. Somehow you can see hermits operating in that diocese. And he was to be our preacher for that day. And I can remember how utterly compelling his sermon was. It was a very simple message about loving one another based on the gospel for the day, John 15. And that congregation, all very well healed, all leaning forward in their seats, totally engrossed and captivated by what this simple man was saying. Such is the moral authority of one who has given up everything to follow Jesus. More recently, on a number of occasions, I spent time on holiday and on study leave at the guest house of a monastery in Ealing, suburb of London. And I went to the monastery abbey for vespers. Most nights I was there, followed by the evening meal with the monks, men only. Here was a community of about 20 men, mostly my age or younger. And they had given up just about everything, repudiated it all to be followers of Jesus. I've read of men and women in the early centuries of the church who likewise overturned social expectation in their own lives. They refused to get married. They wanted to be free. They insisted on living celibate lives, lives of poverty and self-sacrifice, and they took as their command these words of Jesus we've read this morning. And we should honour these people and value their example. They are telling us that it is possible, should it come to this, to live in accordance totally with Jesus' challenge, literally, and they teach us that it is possible to resist the subtle attractions of materialism and self-indulgence. So why aren't we all living like that? 
Well, we considered this question a few weeks ago when we read Luke 12, 13 to 21. You know, this is the story where someone in the crowd asked Jesus to bid his brother divide the inheritance with him and Jesus subsequently gives teaching on wealth. And we said, we affirmed, that Jesus does not demand that all his followers give everything up. People like the women who are ministering to his needs in Luke chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. Or people like Mary and Martha who show him and the disciples hospitality in their own home. And we also considered the work of Paul the Apostle. Paul's work is based on the support of wealthy householders to further his missionary enterprise. Paul had given up everything to follow Jesus, but he by no means expected all his followers and supporters to do likewise. If they had done that, there would be no Pauline mission. Paul is received into households all over the eastern Mediterranean. They are his base. The householders are his supporters. Paul's work is financed by these people. Now this view of wealth accepts that most believers will be required to live out their Christian life and be followers of Christ in the midst of society, in the world, but not of it. And this is the view of the Christian life that we have inherited. We've grown up with this view of what our life commitment will look like. But it means that we live in a somewhat uneasy tension between renunciation and the need to make our way in the world as we find it. We use our money to support Christian workers or to support our church. We like to think that we're generous with what we have. We say no to self-indulgence. We set our course in the world, working out as we go along how to honour God. We pray that we will not be seduced by the false values and the empty display of the world. It's a balancing act. Such a life, lived for Christ, creates its own set of difficulties and potential conflicts of interest. And I am grateful, therefore, for the people who have crossed my path, who have repudiated it all. They tell me that there is more to life than money. They also tell me that in following Christ, I might bring along considerable baggage and that I had better travel lightly. Now, let me bring this to a conclusion. We have heard in our reading from Luke this morning that we might not have to repudiate our relationships and our responsibilities to our families because we love them more than Christ. If that's the case, if we're honest with ourselves and we love those who love us more than Christ, then they are words for us this morning. I don't think any of us are going to go out and sell our possessions. 
But we will leave church this morning determined to be more generous with our money if that's possible. We will ask the hard questions about whether we are in control of our possessions or whether they are controlling us, whether we've made money our God, and we will seek to recognise those areas of our life which betray us as self-indulgent. And we will put our finger on the baggage, the possessions that we carry on our pilgrimage, journeying with Christ to Jerusalem and to the cross. Now, friends, the cross casts a very long shadow indeed and it casts its shadow over the monk over the hermit those who repudiated everything but it reaches into our world too in the midst of our busyness and our relative sense of ease with the world the cross reminds us that our values are ultimately not of this world and that our life is essentially a pilgrimage following Christ. We do not belong here. This is not our final home. We are but passing through. Those who have ears, let them hear. And now the song, This is Life.